0: ted audio collective got a business problem there's a ted talk for that stay updated on everything business on ted business a podcast hosted by columbia business school professor modupe akinola every week she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work answering questions like how do four-day work weeks work Do Will a Machine Ever Take My Job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. This archival episode of Design Matters originally dropped in August of 2022.
1: You know, when I look back, sometimes I don't recognize that person. She was so, or I was, so disciplined and so dedicated and committed to one thing, and that was to win
0: from the ted audio collective this is design matters with debbie millman for 18 years debbie millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do how they got to be who they are and what they're thinking about and working on On this episode, Chris Everett talks about her career and the business of women's tennis.
1: Our generation built a tour, and we worked hard to build that tour. Truth be told, though, Eddie Murphy in Dreamgirls being serious, it's almost like the video for How Can It Be, where you're just kind of waiting for him to crack a joke, and then he doesn't.
0: You're waiting for the host of this week's Saturday Night Live to come walking in to tell you that it's just a skit.
1: Or at some point, everyone breaks scene and looks at the camera and says, live Live from New York, York, it's Saturday night. The Show Mission. Two men, one podcast. Every black film ever made. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever good podcasts be.
0: When you think of Chris Everett, you might think of her many years at the very top of women's tennis, of her double-handed backhand and her way of dominating the baseline. You might remember her epic matches with tennis legends, including Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova. Or you might think of her as an expert tennis commentator on television, where for decades now she has been displaying her deep knowledge of the physical and psychological aspects of the game. Along with being central to the development of women's tennis as a major sporting event, she has also other creative passions, including jewelry design. Today we're going to talk about her new line of tennis bracelets and her groundbreaking, legendary career. Chris Everett, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you. Chris, I understand when you were five years old, you were in the live audience of a popular children's program called The Skipper Chuck Show, and the (laughs) audience was all kids, and there was a segment wherein Skipper Chuck would ask questions. It just so happened that on your one appearance on the show, Skip put a microphone in front of you and asked what your father did for a living you lied. What did you say? And why did you say it?
1: Uh, That was my first performance on TV. And you're right, I did lie. Um, (laughs) And I think at that time, my father was a teaching tennis pro. And I was embarrassed because all these other Kids were saying, my dad's a doctor, my dad's a lawyer, you know, so I was embarrassed, okay? just I'll just put it out there. So I said, he's a painter. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> and I don't even know if I meant, did he paint houses or did he, was he an artist or what? You got me. You got me. I, I was thrown off. I didn't want to say he was a, he was a tennis pro or instructor. Because there were very few of those in those days, and I wanted to be more mainstream, so I said he was a painter. I, I hope that I hope you are not saying that set me set me up for the rest of my life. Oh my God, no, no, not at all, not at all. Um, my could, my there mom could be was a there. my mom was a painter
0: <laughs> when I was growing up, and I remember I once lied and said she was a receptionist.
1: <laughs> oh, thank heavens! I am not the only one that lies. Okay, good. <laughs> what did What did your dad think of of being re, recategorized? <laughs> I think he laughed. I think they were just laughing. You know, it was like, what? <laughs> they were in the audience. And and he just laughed. And um, uh, I just was very shy at that time. And I didn't like attention. And I just didn't want to be controversial and, and different than anybody else. So I just went mainstream with the painter. Word. (laughs) Yep.
0: Your dad was first introduced to tennis as a ball boy for the legendary player Bill Tilden, where he honed his skills on courts made of wooden boards. And he received a tennis scholarship to Notre Dame where he was a captain and played number one singles. What made him decide to become a tennis coach?
1: Well, I don't think he had any choice because he played number one for Notre Dame and he also played on the men's tour, professional tour. And well, it was amateur tour in those days. But he actually won the Canadian Open. He won the national indoors. He was really starting to make a name for himself. And then he got drafted and he went into the Navy for two years. And when he came back, he realized that he had to get a job and he had to make money and he had to earn a living. You know, it was it was time to be serious and get a serious job.
0: Your dad worked at Holiday Park in Florida and started coaching you and all your siblings when you were each five or six years old, and you've all made tennis a significant part of your lives. All that being said, you've stated that your dad might have been prouder of not having to pay for college for any of his kids than he was of your specific success. And you've also written about how when you were very young, you preferred to swim with your friends than play tennis. And remember being very mad at him because he took you away from that. Did you
1: resent playing tennis at first? That was interesting. Yeah, I I was, um, you know, I, I like to have my friends. And every um, day after school, I would go over to Kara Bennett's house. She uh-huh. was my best friend. And she had a pool at her house. And we did not have a pool at our house. We were not that lucky and we didn't have that much money. So I would go over to her house and swim. And then we'd have barbecues. And all of a sudden, one day, my dad picked me up from school, and he brought me to Holiday Park. And I'm like, what the? You know, <laughs> Yeah." You know. of course, I I wasn't thinking that, but I was like crushed. I was crushed. And he started bringing me over to, to Holiday Park every day. And there was no more Kara Bennett uh, pool parties, ex- except maybe on the weekends. But even that fizzled out when I started playing tournaments on the weekends. So... I was d- definitely resentful in the beginning, as resentful as a five-year-old or a six-year-old could feel. But it's not a nice feeling. I couldn't voice my opinion because my dad was very, he was a very dominant kind of a guy. And he was, you know, you you didn't say no to him. You know, he was very strict. And, and I remem- I do remember feeling resentful. But then time went by and I develop new friendships, you know, with the girls at Holiday Park. And so, I mean, it took a little while, but then I started to, to have some friends there and started to play well. And I started to have something that I was good at. So the thought of Kara Bennett and the barbecues kind of went out the window, you know, within a year or two. And, and I started to establish the fact that I was a good junior player. When did you first realize you had talent? I think, you know, you have talent when you play tournaments and you measure yourself against other girls and you see the results and winning matches and then you get to the semifinals and then you get to the finals. And I was always, even in the 10 and unders, one or two in the country and the 12 and unders, I was one and 14, I was one. And so I was a very successful junior player. It was really good for my self-esteem. You know, at that young of an age, I think kids need to feel good about themselves. And every time I was on the court and I was I was winning matches and I was focusing and I was really perfecting my craft at a young age, it made me feel valued and it made me feel really good. And the other thing is I was making my dad happy. I think that was a big part of my tennis, too.
0: Yeah, I read that. A big part of your drive to succeed early on was partly due to a desire to get
1: praise from him. Was he a tough coach? no no he you know i think when I look back um my father never yelled at me once because I lost. He only got mad one time when i when I gave up mm. and I just gave up i just I was like so. I was so discouraged that I just, you know, gave up in a match and then he got mad. But he was one of the better tennis dads, you know, no pressure. Um, He didn't even go to tournaments to watch. He sent my mother because he got too nervous, but he was strict. It's like, okay, practice time's at eight o'clock in the morning. You're going to practice four hours today. After it rains, you're going to practice no, you cannot go to a sleepover because you have a tournament the next day. So, I mean, in, the, in that respect, he was, he was pretty strict. But to me, strict is, is different than, you know, dominating or the fact that he, he didn't give me any freedom to do anything.
0: Your dad taught you something that has become instrumental to your success. He taught you how to bottle your emotions during a match and never give your opponents an indication of how you're feeling. And I read that he taught you that anytime you show emotion, you give your opponent an opening to play you as well as the game to exploit your mood and coax you into poor strategic choices. And... I was wondering, how did he teach you that?
1: I was practicing. Um, I think he just watched me in practice one day and I like banged my racket or threw it or something, (laughs) which I did often in practice. And finally he said to me, he goes, Chrissy, you got to stay calm. You got to be cool out here. He goes, because you don't want to let your opponent see that you're upset because they'll have that aha moment. I've got her and they'll gain more confidence. And I became known as the poker face after that, like Little Miss Poker Face, because I would not let my opponent see if I was discouraged or if I was not, if I was mad, if I was unhappy with the way I was playing. I just had that placid look on my face. And I think that won me a lot of points, a lot of matches and a lot of Grand Slam titles, just having that temperament. It really did work because whenever I played a girl and I saw that she was upset and banging a rack and discouraged, I mean, I, I knew I had her. So that's really sending a message across the net to the other player. How were you able to
0: manage that? I I just was watching um, the new series, A League of Their Own, and that famous line, there's no crying in baseball, shows up again in this series, <laughs> which made me really happy. I, I can't control when I feel emotional just, you know, preparing for a show like today. I can't imagine being on the world stage and having that kind of pressure and being able to control your emotions and so few athletes actually can
1: was there techniques that you use to be able to do that? Well you said something very important you said you like maybe have tears before the show or whatever it's it's just during that performance mm. that i'm like placid and i'm i try to turn the emotions off because i'm a firm believer and i tell i tell all the, my kids that i mentor in tennis, I tell them, when you get too emotional, the mind turns off. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. <laughs> you know, right. You're feeling, 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 but you're really not thinking. And you have to think when you're a tennis player. It came easy to me. I, I and I say that not in a boastful way, but in a way that I wasn't the naturally strong quick athlete of a Martina Navratilova or a Steffi Graf or a Serena Williams. So I had to compensate and find other ways, other edges. And I realized at a young age that my temperament, by being calm and cool on the court, by being present in every single point and trying to win every single point and having, you know, just a good mental, being strong mentally, I felt that that was my, my, the strength of my game. But trust me, in my personal life, I'm a, you know, I'm a wreck. So, (laughs) I mean, I, you know. That makes me feel a little bit better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and then you raise kids and you go, what the heck? You know, what, what, what do I do now? You know, my hands are up in the air all the time. So, I think that that was the only place that I could control myself and I I could be in control. So I find that the players that have a lot of talent are the ones that some somehow don't always make the right decisions in their game because they have too many choices or maybe they're a little too emotional. You know, there are players that are very talented physically, very talented mentally and very talented emotionally. But It's great if you can have all three. You've said that because you were small and not the type of player
0: who was going to pile up winners, your dad built your game around minimizing errors. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that means.
1: Well, I couldn't blow anybody off the court with my power because I was small. Um, As much as even as a pro, I went and I you know, really annoyed me because I did everything Martina did. I went into the gym like she did and I you know, I trained like she did. And it's funny, we we used to train together and she did 35 pound weights and I did 15 pound weights. <laughs> that, was, that was the difference. But I did everything. The reps were the same. But you just have to really be aware of your strengths and your weaknesses and that, have that self-awareness of yourself. And I tried to be consistent. And I tried to get every ball in the court and I tried to place it well. I tried to move my opponent from side to side. I tried to outsteady them. Um, I tried to drop shot. I used my drop shot, my lob. I had you know some variety in my game. And I just feel like nowadays with this power game, everybody talks about, oh, you know, so-and-so hit 35 winners. Yeah, well, they hit 45 errors. Mm. You, know, they, you know, it kind of balances. You lose a point when you make an error, and you win a point when you make a winner. So I was winning more points, forcing my opponent into making an error than I was make, making winners.
0: Is it true that your two-handed backhand was developed out of necessity more than
1: desire? Yes, because at five years old, we didn't have the children's rackets back then. We used adult rackets, so they were heavy. And I was fine with my forehand, but that backhand, when I had to come over here and and use it, at the back of my right arm, very often the racket would fall out of my hand. So I just I just got frustrated one day and just gripped it with two hands and started hitting with two hands, and it was mainly for strength reasons. But at the same time, across the world, Bjorn Borg was doing it, and in Belleville, Illinois, Jimmy Connors was doing it, and so it was like, I think the three of us, if anybody really started that, that trend. So
0: much has been written about the impact that your father has had on your life, but your mother was also very influential as well. What was the most powerful or enduring lesson that she taught you?
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I do a lot of interviews and mainly it's about my career and. I talk about my dad a lot. He was my he was my inspiration when I played. He taught me how to play. as my coach my whole life, and I and I think I did an interview like two weeks ago and talked the whole time about my dad. And I looked at a picture of my mother on the wall and I just burst into tears. Aww. I know because you know she I don't talk about her enough, you know. And I she was the glue to the family. She was someone who was the opposite of my dad. You know, she was very sweet and very calm and thought it was very important that we were normal kids and that we did other things besides play tennis. Um, But in those days, in the 50s and the 60s, the wife had her place. Yeah. And her place was to, you know, honor my dad and and really sort of do what... he, He was the boss of the family. So, but she went traveled to terminus with me, thank heavens, and because she was so relaxed and she didn 't know a lot about tennis it it actually kept me relaxed and you know we 'd go to museums and we 'd go sightseeing in paris and we'd you know I would never have done that with my dad, so my mom helped to keep me uh, more well balanced and and uh calmer I think that my dad ever could could have done she was she never said a bad word about anybody; she was a saint in my eyes
0: mm. Well, clearly, you're the product of good parenting.
1: I had good parents, but you can also have good parents and not turn out well. Yeah, too. that's true.
0: That's true. Or you can also have terrible parents and turn out well. So. Yeah,
1: great. Right. right. You just never know. But I did. I was very lucky to have, especially nowadays when you, when you, you know, in tennis, there have been parents that haven't been so great with their kids. So I feel very fortunate. You
0: started playing state tournaments when you were about 10 years old, and I, I read that one of the favorite family trips was piling into the family station wagon, complete with a bed in the back, to head to the USTA National Open for girls under 12 in Chattanooga, Tennessee. How old were you when you won your first
1: title? Um, I was 12. I, won my, I was runner-up. And the 10 and unders, but I won the 12 and unders in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And yeah, we'd pile everybody in the car. And and it was such a thrill to stay at the Holiday Inn. I read that you love the vibrating beds. <laughs> because the bed vibrated. It cost a quarter, but we would like just jump into bed. And that was such, a, such an experience. And um, then t- it had a pool. So after our matches, we were allowed to go swimming. And I mean, that was that was a thrill. That was a thrill for us. Of all the Everett children,
0: you became the biggest tennis star. What gave your dad and mom the
1: sense that you had what it took? You know, we didn't really talk about that. Like how come Chrissy became number one and nobody else did? I mean, we we really didn't talk about it much. And I have to say, um, when you brought up earlier about, um, Drew's my oldest brother, and then John's my other brother, and Claire's my youngest sister. And the three of them played number one for their college. And my dad never had to pay a cent. So I think I think he was probably as proud, if not more proud of them. And then Jeannie and I, uh, my late sister and I, um, turned professional. So I think I had more hunger. I think my other siblings were more normal. And they wanted to... Go to football games and they wanted to go to college and they it wasn't life or death when they lost a match you know and I think that for me I just I don't know I just sensed at an early age that I started winning nationals and oh oh better watch out I'm gonna maybe turn pro one day and then when I turned pro it just it took off I just took off and it's the first time you win a big title and you win those trophies, it's like you're on top of the world and i wanted i like that feeling what advice
0: would you have for parents that are nurturing their children's athletic talent when do you know if there really is an opportunity to be a star or when it's just a
1: dream <sighs> i i've had a um, tennis academy uh, for 25 years now and that question comes up a lot as far as there are a lot of Pushy parents. There are a lot of parents that want it more than the kids. Um, You know, I'm just like, whoa, you know, be their mother, be their father. Don't be talking all the time about tennis. They're putting enough pressure on themselves inwardly. Your role is to take the pressure off. Your role is to reconfirm, I love you so much, and I'm just so happy it, it's I'm very proud to go out and watch you play and win or lose as long as you try we're so proud of you that kind of a message but not all parents do that because they, they kind of want it for themselves or they want it too much for the kid and then I say leave it to the coach you know leave the coaching to the coach you can certainly you can be involved in this situation we include you any of your thoughts we include you but l- talk to the coach and um it's a it's a tough balance. It's a tough balance. Fine line, it really is. By the time you were in eighth grade, you
0: became the number one nationally ranked player in the girls fourteen and under division. And one year later, in nineteen seventy, and I remember this, you defeated the number one ranked women's professional player in the world, Margaret Court, by a score of seven six, seven six and Margaret had just recently won all four Grand Slam single titles in the same calendar year, a feat that had been accomplished only five times in the history of the sport. Yet you thought of your win as a fluke. <laughs> how, how and why did you think that? Did I? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen it in a few different <laughs> interviews that you thought okay. your win uh, of her in that in that moment was just a fluke.
1: I mean, I beat her fair and square. Uh, it was on clay, which was my favorite surface, my best. And clay was her worst. I mean, I think she had a lot going against her. I think she had just won the Grand Slam. She was tired. She had committed to playing that tournament after the U.S. Open. So probably she was she was drained from the year. And, you know, she was—what uh, really impressed me was that night there was a cocktail party, and she was gracious enough to go to the cocktail party, where I'm telling you, you know, nowadays, if you lose a match, there aren't any cocktail parties that you go to.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: But you were— Fifteen. Yeah. I mean, what did you make of that?
0: I mean, aside from it being a fluke, how did that
1: feel? Fifteen years old. It wasn't a fluke. If I said that, I was probably just trying to be humble. But now looking, <laughs> but now looking back, it wasn't a fluke because I continued to beat her. I mean, yeah. I, I had many more wins over her, and I remember beating Billie Jean King six love six one on clay. Now, if I had played her on a grass court or a hard court, it might have been a different, it, it probably would have been a different result. But I think it was because it was the clay, that was what I was brought up on. Um, the women in that day pretty much only served and volleyed, and they didn't have good ground strokes. And I was raised in the new generation to have good ground strokes. So I just would, I just outsteadied her and, and won the match.
0: One year later, at 16, still in high school, you made your major tournament debut at the 1971 US Open. You beat Etta Budding, 6-1, 6-0. Your next three matches went three sets, with you coming back from behind each time to defeat Marianne Eisel, (laughs) Francoise Dour, and Leslie Hunt, before eventual champion Billie Jean King, who was 27 at the time stopped your streak. And in the process, Chrissy, you became the youngest semifinalist in U.S. Open history. All of that being said, for the first two years on the tennis circuit, you said that none of the women on the tour would speak to you. Why? Why?
1: (laughs) Because I was getting all the press. I was on the cover of Newsweek. You know, I was the it girl at that. Nobody had seen a young girl until then um, do so well you know, a young school girl, uh, you know, an all-American girl. And, you know, I was a promoter's dream. I was a sponsor's dream. And the reason why was because basically they, the, 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 the other women professionals, had done all the work. Mm. They had done all the work to provide a professional tour for women, for 200, 300 women. They had provided a way to support the sport To support the women. They knocked on sponsors doors and got great sponsorship. I think Philip Morris was our first sponsor. So they did all the work. And I kind of came slithered right in there and started beating them. And they then turned their attention to me. So I 100% understand why they felt the way that they did. Uh, th- there are some of them that were nice, by the way. <laughs> well, ultimately, it was Billie Jean King
0: who helped change their attitudes. Yes. How did she do that?
1: You know, I wasn't there, but supposedly she had a meeting with them, um, with all with Rosie Casals and you know all the other women professional players. And actually, Rosie was um, very outspoken about you know not not kind of liking me. And then she ended up being one of my better friends a- after that. So it's funny we all became friends after that, but. I think she talked to them and said, listen, Chrissy is putting money in our pockets. I remember that quote. She is bringing more people to the table. She's bringing more people to the matches. She's bringing more sponsorship, more money, um, more publicity, more TV. And this is very important for the growth of the game of women's tennis. You should be lucky that she's there. And I think that, that kind of changed their philosophy a little bit. So it was Billie Jean that she was the one person that wasn't threatened by me it was nice of her yeah yeah because she had vision she always saw the long term she always saw what was what could happen you know which was great are you good friends to this day great friends yeah yeah great friends with Billie Jean great friends with Martina you know we all stuck together through thick and thin and you know we just have always supported each other I think that's women should support each other
0: you turned professional at 18 in nineteen seventy two and began what can only be called an assault, (laughs) an all-out assault on the record books. And I want to share a short list of your extraordinary accomplishments now. You became the first player, male or female, to win 1,000 singles. You won 18 Grand Slam singles titles, 157 single titles, and 32 double titles. In your 303 tournaments played, you reached... 273 semifinals with a win-loss record of 90.1%. You were ranked the best female tennis player in the world for 260 weeks. You were the year-end world number one singles player in 1974, 75, 76, 77, 78, 80, and 81. He won the U.S. Open six times, Wimbledon three times, the French Open seven times, the WTA Tour Championships four times, and helped the U.S. win the Fed Cup eight times. Just like bow down, Chrissy. I'm bowing down. Thank you. Congratulations you've Thanks. changed you've changed the world of women's sports in such a profound way, and I actually have to say I'm six years old, I watched all of it. <laughs> you were such a hero to so many young women then and now um mm-hmm. do you do you have a sense of of what that means or or do you just feel like it was a fluke?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know when I look back that w- Sometimes I don't recognize that person. You know, that Why? that person was a... She was so... Or I was so disciplined and so dedicated and committed, you know, to one thing. And that was to win. When people ask me, what do you think you've done for the game of tennis? And I, I always say, oh my gosh. I go, I had two huge trailblazers in my era, Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova. And Billie Jean just opened the doors to equality and equal pay. And she just was such a visionary and such a great leader to all of us. And Martina coming out as gay and, you know, she had her own leadership and she, she had her own path that she followed in a very, very authentic way. And I kind of like was the girl next door. I mean, I was like, okay, that's kind of like, you know, white bread. You know, what, what is, I kind of got lost in, in that shuffle a little bit. But when I look back, I realized that what I what I helped to do was to encourage young girls to become tennis players, to say, hey, it's okay to be athletic, It's okay to have muscles. You know, it's okay to be tough. You can still be feminine. You can still have your friends. You can still wear your jewelry, which we'll get into later. You can still, you know, you can still be yourself. Because when I first came on the scene, having muscles and being tough was not attractive. Yeah. It was taboo. I mean, when you look at it, it was taboo. So... I think that I helped to bring some more task players to the table. And also, I think what I did was, I think I made people realize that, or young girls realize, hey, you don't have to be the biggest, the strongest. You don't have to hit the hardest. You don't have to be the most powerful. You don't have to move the quickest. That if you work hard and you put your mind to something, you can still excel. Look at me. I'm five foot six. And, and I couldn't blow anybody off the court. So just giving inspiration to young girls, I think, even, even, even more than the records, I think, means more to me. Your domination of the game and your sort of steely
0: demeanor on the court earned you several nicknames, including things like the Ice
1: Princess. Um, what did you make of that? Those nicknames were formed the first year I went over to Wimbledon, the, the British press. Yeah, they thought a schoolgirl should be giggly and so they dubbed they dubbed you the Ice Maiden. Exactly. <laughs> the Ice, Princess, exactly. Ice Maiden. I was called Little Miss Metronome because I just all I did was just hit every ball back. I was called Little Miss Moneybags when I was speaking out for equal pay after Billy Jean kind of tutored me on that. Um but little, little Miss Icicle because I was you know, they they their interpretation was that I was cold on the court, but I was just, you know, mentally tough and I was keeping everything inside. And as I said to you before, I realized at a young age that the more emotion you feel, it shuts shuts you down. It shuts your mind down, shuts your body down. And you cannot play relaxed great tennis.
0: Do you think that those types of nicknames might happen now? Do you think that, like, how do you think the press impacts the way
1: tennis players play now? Oh. No, it would be very inappropriate. That's the word now, inappropriate. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that as a commentator, I have to watch everything I say about a player. If I say someone's very athletic, that can also mean that they're not mentally tough. Trust me, I've been told these things. So it's like in this day and age, I have to watch everything you say. In that day, you could say anything you wanted to. You could say somebody was a clown and you wouldn't get in trouble. You could say, you know, the bad boys of tennis and <laughs> Illy Nastasi was nasty Nastasi. Yeah. Nasty. He right. was nasty. Jimmy was a bad boy, and John Macro is the bad boy. And and now it's like Kyrgios is sort of the bad boy, but they're very cautious with how they explain it. You know, it's just it's just so different. It's just so different now. Which I don't know good or bad i don't know which i don't know which is better i don't know i think we're we've gone over a little bit too far with the you know as a commentator i would like to say if somebody's not playing well somebody's playing poorly even if they're really playing bad you know instead of saying oh i guess it's not her day you know somebody's playing poorly right now she's a much much better tennis player but you'd get blasted if you said that yeah yeah How did you feel
0: when you weren't playing well? How did
1: you sort of pick yourself up after losing a match? I played a match once when I was 16 against Nancy Ritchie, and I was down 6-1, 5-love, 40-love, and I won the match. 6-1, think about that, 6-1, 5-love, 40-love, and I won the match. And I think if a player comes from behind in a match, they remember that. Mm. And that's the beauty of tennis, unlike any any other sport. I mean, you look at skiing, or you look at all these Olympic sports. You make one little mistake, you're out. You can be down six love and still win a match. You can always come back. You can always change the momentum of a match. And if you truly believe that, you know, you you lose six love. You sit down on the side of the court. And you think, okay, what can I do different? You've got to go to plan B. You have a plan B. You might, you still might win the match. The only time I was negative on the court is when Martina Navratilova had, she, she beat me 13 times in a row. And she was so dominant. She just blew me off the court for two and a half years. And I was, I'd walk on the court and I'd go, I just like, I knew I was going to lose. And it's not the right way, you know, I wish I hadn't felt that way, but she just, she owned me during those two and a half years. I don't know how, but that 14th match, I beat her. And then after I beat her, I beat her again and again and again. So I I finally realized, you know, I just was so stubborn. I didn't want to change my game, but I changed my game and I beat her your
0: rivalry would come to define women's tennis for years. Over the course of 16 years, you played each other 80 times. 60 of them in finals and Billie Jean King said that your rivalry is not only one of the most important rivalries in tennis it is one of the most important rivalries in all sports the two of them took the baton from our generation and moved the sport forward they took tennis not just women's tennis to a new level did playing Martina change your game i mean what what was it that turned that 13th loss into a
1: 14th victory Yeah, we made each other better because before I had her number the first few years, and she gets mad at me when I say this, but when I first saw her, she was a little chubby and (laughs) um, she had a little bit of a temper. She would cry on the court and uh, she didn't move that well. And I had her number and I would beat her. And then all of a sudden she got together with Nancy Lieberman, who was later became her partner. Nancy, as you know, was a great basketball player. And Nancy watched a match where I beat her six love, six love, I think, on clay. And Nancy jerked her off the court and said, that was the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm going to get you into shape. So the next year, Martina got into great shape. And then that started her two and a half years of dominance. So we both had our periods where... I dominated, she dominated, and at the end, the last third of our rivalry, I think we were pretty even. I beat her at the French Open twice, she beat me at the U.S. Open, and as it ended up, we both ended up winning 18 Grand Slam titles, which we look at each other, we go, yeah, that was only appropriate that we ended up with the same amount of of Grand Slam titles.
0: I read at the, sort of, towards the end of of your play, playing each other, you sort of
1: felt bad when you beat her. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, we did. Because at the end of the day, um, on Sunday, when the finals were being played, we were the last two in the locker room. And, you know, it was always a little tense. And we're getting ready for the match. And, you know, we're getting stretched out. And we're talking to our coaches. And But one of us would win. One of us would lose. We'd go back in the locker room. And one, and we one of us would be comforting the other one. One of us would be probably... Probably crying, and the other one would come over and put their arm around each. The, yeah, we, you know, how can you not get close when you are in that situation for years? There's a deep, and the same with Billie Jean. There's something really, there's a really deep connection between the three of us. Do you think that the younger tennis players have that
0: kind of intimacy?
1: I don't know. I think that we had it because we, our generation, built a mm. tour and we worked hard to build that tour. We did a lot of press, we talked to a lot of sponsors, we promoted women's tennis. This generation is different because they're in a sense they're reaping the benefits of it, but in their own way because of social media, they have a lot of a lot of other pressures that we didn't have. And there's more money now in today's game. Everybody has their own teams. You got the coach, you got the hitting partner, you got the physio, you got the, the mental coach. You know, it's just now there's so much money that they can pay for teams that can work on their bodies and work on their minds, and they may, it may extend their career for another 10 years. Serena's playing at 40 years old right now. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of players that are playing in their late 30s. In our day, Usually early thirties was the retirement age and they're under the, the, I mean, they're under the microscope even more so just with the social media. Yeah. The price of privacy is, you kind of wonder if it's worth it.
0: Yeah. I mean, the scrutiny Uh is, I I mean, I can't even imagine the pressure and, and how to contain that. Chrissy, you retired from professional tennis in 1989. And at the time of your retirement, I found this quote. John McEnroe stated, she was an assassin that dressed nice and said the right
1: things and meanwhile, just cut you to shreds on the court. (laughs) I saw another quote where he said, cut you open, take your heart out, and then put it back in and sew it up. Um, (laughs) Another one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, good old John. No, he had it right. He was your father's favorite player, right? He was. He was. Um, You know, he and I didn't really get along when we were playing on the tour because he thought I, because I did, because I said the right things that I was fake, I thought that he had a bad temper. So we didn't get along that well. But then we started working with each other for first NBC, now ESPN. And now we're close. You know, now we kind of laugh. He's mellowed a lot. And I'm, I have stronger opinions. So he likes that too.
0: (laughs) Since retiring, you founded the Everett Tennis Academy with several family members, including your brother, John, and your dad. And the academy trains both talented high school students and full-time professional level players. What kind of teacher are you now?
1: I'm, you know, I'm more of a um, encouraging. I try to be so encouraging because I I just know the frustrations that these kids go through. I I, I think I'm more suggestions, like I make suggestions to them instead of talking down on them and saying, this is what you should have done this. You should have done this. I just say now, and I asked them, I said, do you think that was the right choice? So I, I kind of, I like being the mentor part of it more than I like to give instruction. I like the mentoring. I like the mental aspect of it. I like, I talk to them about pressure. I mean, that's one area that I can really give good input about what pressure does to your body and how you have to be aware of what it does and, and, and sort of compromise with it. You have to go with it. You just can't not have pressure. You just have to kind of go with it. You know, don't go for the lines and don't go for the big first serves. If, if you're feeling shaky, you know, just kind of get your groove back and get, and sort of get some more rhythm in your game and maybe play a little more conservative if you're shaky and then when you feel confident, then then go pull the trigger and go for your shot. So I kind of, I kind of have a more of a the mental aspect of the game, because when it comes to the grips and open stance and I that's another generation, even though I know how to teach it, I let I let our coaches at the academy deal with that.
0: I want to talk with you about something new you're part of that was inspired by an on the court experience in 1978. During the 1978 U.S. Open, you were wearing a diamond bracelet, which fell off while you were playing. And at the time, I believe that play was temporarily halted. And when asked about it in the post-match interview, you stated, oh, that was my tennis bracelet. And since then, diamond bracelets have been called tennis bracelets. After all these years, you have partnered with jewelry designer Monica rich to bring the first authentic and original tennis bracelet rooted in its founding story to find jewelry for the first time. How did this partnership come to be?
1: I actually reached out to Monica because I've always been a fan of her jewelry and I like the message behind it. A lot of it's empowerment. And so I reached out to her and I said, you know, there is one time, I think 40 years ago, where I put my name on a diamond bracelet for a year, but had no collaboration, had no creativity. It was like an endorsement that all athletes did. They slapped their name on something. They got their paid, but they had nothing to do with it. I said, and I, I just been thinking a lot about it now where I feel like there was a collaboration that we could, that we could join together and, um, create an authentic tennis bracelet and reveal the the real story. And she said, okay, she goes, so what do you remember that day? Mm. And I said, I remember playing on center court. It was a green court, the white lines. I remember sweat on the court. I remember my diamonds sparkling. And she said, interesting. And she mocked up a bracelet that was I was knocked my socks off because you know each of the bracelets had a little pear-shaped drop or or a white sapphire, which signified sweat. Then Three of the braces have a little emerald in the in the mm. middle of the, the diamonds that signify the green court. At the end, there's a little CE. But I, I just, it was important for me, and I don't, I don't apologize for this. Some people might say, oh, please, but it was important for me to be feminine when I was playing because I was playing a very rugged sport where you're sweating, you're falling, you were... You know, you had to develop muscles to be strong to hit the ball. But I also liked, you know, wearing my hair in a braid or wearing ruffle bloomers or, yeah. you know, having having a diamond bracelet. The press were all, you know, what, what happened? What was going on out there that play was suspended? And I said, that was, it's just my tennis bracelet broke, you know. And I've never had my story out there and I've never had my voice out there to explain exactly what happened, so... I think um, I'm excited about it. I've seen the pieces, 13 pieces so far, and it's it's genuine to me. It's not slapping my name on an endorsement. It happened to me. No, they're
0: beautiful, beautiful yeah. bracelets. I covet, Thank you. I covet them.
1: <laughs> yes, they are. Did you have a lot of
0: back and forth with Monica? What was the creative process like? Did she show you yes. sketches and then you
1: would have – talk about how – how that works. Yeah, we did. We did. We did it together. We. I mean, I am. Look, I'm not in the jewelry business, but I know what I like. <laughs> I know what I like. And the first one she was just an all diamond with the little drop with the sweat and and the green emerald and and it was pretty. And and then she said, well, what kind of shapes do you like? And I go, you know, I'd like to see a bracelet with not just all diamonds and not just a thirty thousand dollar bracelet because I don't think the younger generation can afford that. Um, let's let's make them. Um, dainty, you know, let's make them not fragile, but but dainty so they can stack them because that seems to be what everybody's doing now with the necklaces, mm-hmm. the rings, the bracelets. They'll be less expensive. Yeah, I would like to have one bracelet that like the diamonds are all different shapes, not yeah. just round. And, you know, space them out. They don't have to be all together because that's going to be more expensive, although there is one that's all together that's gorgeous. But Um, We tried to to make the the pricing for everybody as well.
0: they're absolutely beautiful. And they're really unique. I've never seen the way that you've designed the stones in these different shapes makes it super creative and much more innovative sort of as a statement piece. It's not just the sort of standard quote unquote tennis bracelet. They're really beautiful pieces that feel like they have stories in them.
1: Yeah, and, and like you said, the standard tennis bracelet was all diamonds. Right. And, you know, you can get a $100,000 bracelet that you get 30000 But it's like, let's, you know, for people like us, because, I, look, I was born in a very middle-class family. I could never have afforded something like that. But let's spread the diamonds a little bit and let's still have it, you know, a beautiful bracelet. And then, okay— a year down the road, you get a raise, you want to stack it with another one. And it's just its just a nice look. We want to cater to the younger generation as well. Absolutely. I think you've done that for sure. Chrissy,
0: the last thing I want to talk to you about is your health. You were recently diagnosed with stage one ovarian cancer and went through or are going through a course of chemotherapy.
1: How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I actually did my six co- uh, courses of of um, chemo, they got it early because my sister. Thank heavens! Because and you know, in a nutshell, I'll just I'll just tell you the story. My sister Jeannie passed away three years ago of ovarian cancer because they got it too late in her and it had spread to every part. O- ovarian cancer is insidious and it's hideous and it's there are no um, signs that you have it. And she just started to get tired. At the end, and said, "You know, I, I better go check this." And, and sure enough, she was stage four ovarian cancer. So, what happened was she agreed that they to save they saved her blood and they put it in a file away. And that's what genetic testing basically is because they saved her blood, and when another variant came on the scene, they tested her blood with that variant, and that variant showed that she was BRCA positive. Mm. I was tested. I was BRCA positive. But it was early stages. So what my doctor said, hysterectomy. Within a month, I had a hysterectomy for preventive. So you didn't know anything about having any cancer at that no, point? No, no, no. I had had all my tests. I had had blood tests for ovarian cancer was negative. I passed every test in, with flying colors. So they went in, they got everything, it was everything out. And then three days later, I get a call from my doctor and he said, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I I had no idea. He goes, it's, you have, um, you have cancer um, in your fallopian tubes and and your ovaries. Oh my God. And in the wash, the wash, which was fluid. And we're going to have to go in. Um, we've gotten it all out, but we have to go in and just uh, test the lymph nodes. We have to get like 15 lymph nodes out and then look around the other areas. So I was like, okay, so what you're saying is I'm either going to be stage one or stage three or four. And he said, yeah. How how do you handle news like that? I don't know how I handled that. I I don't know if I was in a fog or what, but I don't remember – Specifically, how I felt about that. But I I remember thinking I could be like my sister. So, three or four days later, I get the call and he said, Clear, clear as can be. So, but I still had to have six courses of chemotherapy for prevention. Right. And now I have a 90 to 95% chance that it won't come back. That seems to be your number, Chrissy. (laughs)
0: 90% of your matches one, 90% chance. Yeah. 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 Um, So. Do you have any advice for folks who have questions about the BRCA gene testing or what they need to consider for their own health if there's ovarian cancer in their histories, in their family's histories?
1: Absolutely. I, I If anybody has ovarian cancer in their family, they have to go get the BRCA test. They have, it's just a blood test. Everybody has a BRCA gene, by the way. It's not just oh, you have the BRCA. It's it's either negative or it's positive. If you are positive for BRCA, your kids have a fifty percent chance of being positive for BRCA. Wow. Okay, so if there is anybody in your family from your aunts to your grandmother to your mother, whatever, you should you should get tested if for ovarian cancer. One thing being that ovarian cancer is you don't have any signs. Breast cancer. You know, you get a mammogram, then you get an ultrasound and you can you can detect easier. So you, you just need to be very on top of your family history medically. 100%. You've said
0: that your sister's
1: death saved your life. My sister's ovarian cancer and by her her death and the fact that they kept her blood filed saved my life. And I should never complain about anything for the rest of my life after that.
0: Chrissy, you've said that playing a tennis match is very like life. If you're down in a tennis match, you can still change the course of the game. Tennis teaches you a lot about hanging in there and not giving up. And it teaches you a lot about belief in yourself. And I just want to thank you for showing the world just how true that is in the way that you've lived your life. And I wanna thank you for changing the way tennis is viewed in our culture and, and showing the world why tennis matters. Thank you so much for joining me on Design Matters today. Thank you, I enjoyed our talk thank very you. much, thank you. You can see the new line of beautiful jewelry Chris Everett has created with Monica Rich monicarichcosan at monicarichcosan.com and see everything that Chris is doing at chriseverett.net. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.